So uh, we're in the third week of Advent, which, if, if you're not familiar with church language, Advent is the four weeks, uh, the four Sundays that, pr- that um, precede Christmas. Um, as Jason said a couple of times, this is a, this is a time when Christians lean into our own longings for the return of Jesus by expressing and reflecting on the longings of those who look to his first coming, right? And so this year, as we're trying to do that, we're, we're doing that through, among other things, a series that we're calling Long Expected, a sermon series. And, and what we're doing in, in that sermon, this series, is we're tracing our way through the promise that God has made uh, to send a rescuer, a rescuer for us that Christians believe was fulfilled in Jesus. And so last time we were here, uh, if you were here with us, we looked at Genesis 3 to see where that promise began, uh, where everything went wrong and how God promised right then and there to make things right. And this week we turn to the calling of an old man through whom God would begin that work. So if you have your place in Genesis 12, our habit here is to stand as we read God's Word before the sermon. So I'd ask you to do that. Just three verses this morning, Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. This is God's Word. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you pray with me? Father, we're coming into this room with a bunch of different stuff. Some of us are expectant, some of us are bored, some of us are wondering how we got dragged into this place. Uh, No matter what we're doing here this morning, we ask that you would come and meet us right there. By your grace, you are not a God who asks us to clean ourselves up. You call us to come to you so that you will clean us up. And so, Lord, as uh, as we listen for your voice this morning, we ask that you would preach your gospel to us. Let the one who speaks fall into the background and let Christ and his cross come to the fore. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. Now, I know some of you weren't here last time we were here worshiping. Um, I want to welcome you again here to this time and this place. But uh, the promise that we saw God make last time we were here is an outrageous promise. I, I don't know how often, especially those of you in the room who are Christians, how often you marvel at that. I mean, think about it for a minute. When God was betrayed, He didn't respond the way we do. Right? When we're betrayed, we generally want to take out vengeance. But instead, He promises to fix things. Not being open to us fixing things. It's another thing we would expect, that He's just kind of open to us making things right, making it up to Him, earning our place back. Not that at all. Instead, He says that He's going to fix it. But how would He do that? And what we're going to see this morning as we look to that is, a, is that this universal promise, this universal promise of I'm going to make everything right, I will make all things right, takes an unassuming turn through the family of somebody who at this point doesn't even have a family. Okay. So as we're looking at this, uh, there's an outline in your bulletin that's helpful. We're going to look at this in three ways. We're going to look at initiating a blessing. We're going to look at expect, extending a blessing. And then finally, we're going to look at what it means to be a blessing. Okay. But before we get to our passage, I I think we need to set up the context of why this is happening in the first place. Because for those of us who are familiar with the Bible, uh, familiar with the the stories of the Bible, um, we we read this story right here as if this kind of thing happens all the time. This is just kind of normal, right? Just commonplace. 
And, and for those of us who are not familiar with the Bible, this story is so bizarre that, that we think to ourselves, if this dude were living today, he'd be locked up. Like, he'd be in an insane asylum. Uh, this is not normal at all. Of course it's not. But you see, the Bible is a story, which means if we jump into the middle of it, and I know we have all different views of what, what exactly the Bible is, that, uh, Christians believe ultimately that it's not a book of rules, it's not even a book to give you a bunch of heroes to model, it's a, it's a story. And when we jump into the middle of it, the danger is that what we're going to do is we're going to take a story out of the story and, and miss something, okay? So let's catch up at what the story is up to this point. God makes the world, he calls it good. He, he creates humanity in his image to be over that world, uh, to be in relationship with him and to realize his, his rule throughout the world. You and I were made originally to be dependent on him. That's what we were made for. But as we saw, like last time we were here, we were tricked into believing a lie, and that lie was twofold. First and foremost, that God was not out for our good. He didn't have our good in mind at all. And second, that we could actually be like him. In other words, we believed that we, we could be like God and that, in fact, we had to be. To, and, and so to accomplish this, all we needed to do was to turn from him, to turn away from him, to stop depending on him, to turn to our own ways. And so that's what we did. And when we did, everything broke. Okay, as the story moves on, first and foremost, what that means is that we were guilty before God. Now, I know that's hard for some of us because we think of the idea of a God who actually takes seriously our actions in the world, that that's a little hard for us to believe. Um, but, but it shouldn't be surprising, right? Because the God of, of the Bible is personal. He's not a force. Um, he, he's, not, he's not an idea. He, he's a person. And when you betray a person, guilt happens. We know this because you and I have been betrayed. You and I have done the betraying. Like, we know that this happens. And so the consequences of that betrayal, the Bible calls hell, okay? Now there I said it. Okay, don't check out. Stay with me, all right? Stay with me for a minute. But secondly, not only became guilty, we became corrupt, meaning that we, we changed. And what I mean is this. We were made to love God. We were made to love other people. That was what we were made for. Our lives were meant to be outward focused. But now we are fundamentally turned in on ourselves. You and I both experienced this, right? We look out for number one. Even when at times we have people fooled into think we're looking out for them, really what we want from them is something for us, okay? We look out for ourselves. And in so doing, we are living out of the lie that we can be like God, which is what we call pride, and that we must be like Him, which is what we call self-protection. Okay, you with me? All right, now last week, though, we saw, or last, last time we were here, we saw that God promised to make things right, that he would deal with our guilt, that he would deal with our corruption. He, he wasn't okay with us staying that way, and he would deal with evil in the world. But then if you were to have kept on reading after Genesis 3, you'd see that, like, things don't get any better, right? The, the, the guilt and the corruption of Adam seems to be kind of transferred onto his kids because all of a sudden, the very next story in Genesis 4, we got two brothers, and they do not get along really well, as in out in a field clubbing each other to death, okay? Like one of them is dead at the end of the story. And then things get so bad that we're, uh, we're, we're told in chapter 6 of Genesis that, that every intention of the thoughts, of the hearts of, of humanity were only evil continually. You grasp that for a minute. That, that things were so bad that the, every inclination of our hearts was only evil all the time. Okay, now some of us are thinking, man, that, that is an exaggeration, okay? Uh, and, 
That could be true until we begin to remember that evil, according to God, is, is uh, defined in its radical nature by things that we would normally consider evil. But in it, it's just everyday occurrence just means doing things, living ways, seeking your own way apart from Him. And so in other words, at the end of chapter 6, what we're finding is that humanity is continuing in the mess that Adam had made. And so God judges things in the flood, but things don't change because the problem hadn't been addressed. You and I, humanity didn't need a spanking. We needed a change. We needed to be changed from the inside out. We were still living in a state less than what we were made for. We were alienated from God. And then in the chapter right before the one that we come to, we have this story of this tower, right? The Tower of Babel. Maybe you've heard of that. The story is a little bizarre, so let me summarize it. Humanity wanted to make a name for itself. Wanted to make ourselves great. Okay? Remember that language. We'll come back to it. So we decided to make our own way back to God. And so this story, it, it sounds like it's a giant masonry project, right? But what this story is really about is about the creation of man-made religion. We can do it ourselves. We can get back up there by ourselves. We don't need him. But God knows that this isn't good for us, and so he puts a stop to it. And as that story ends, we're introduced to this dude named Terah. And Terah has a son named Abram. Okay? So where we are left at the end of that story is that every person on the planet has turned away from God. We're still in the place of Genesis 6. Things changed under Noah because God had, had selected Noah, pulled him out, and made him different, but then everything has gone back. We're, we're still turned away from God. No one is seeking him. No one is worshiping him. Terah and his family, which would have included Abram, lived in a city called Ur. Okay? It's still like the most creative name ever, right? It's like, where do you live? Ur. Oh, I, I know that place. Great shawarma. Um, anyway, uh, Ur is a city in what, what we would call Iraq, right? And probably... Terah and his family worshipped the same God that everyone else in Ur worshipped, which was a moon god named Nanar. Again, wow, that's cr- Nanar, uh, creative. Anyway, uh, and so we're left with this disturbing reality at the end of, ch- of chapter 11 of Genesis, that God's promise to fix things, God's promise to restore us to himself, seems unlikely at best. But then, all of a sudden, we have an unexpected call. Look down at verses 1 to 2. A few things I want to note here. Uh, First, I want to note who who initiates this. Uh, Verse 1 says, Now the Lord said to Abram. Now, when you see the word Lord uh, all in capital letters in your Bible, that's normally a way that they are trying to translate what in, in the original text, the Hebrew, is a certain name for God. Okay, God is called a bunch of different things in the Old Testament. Um, at, at times, he's, he's called um, God Almighty, or there are different ways we translate it, God the Provider. But when it says Lord, all in capitals, that's a certain name of God. It's, it's Yahweh. It's, it's what is the covenant name of God. Okay, And when that is used, it draws attention to God's promise to rescue the world, because the only people who ever seem to use that name are those through whom God is executing his promise. Okay. Now, second, just as much as we see divine initiation in this, we also see divine action. He says to Abram, go, and then everything else from go on is what God is going to do. Did you notice that? God is going to do all these things. Abram is called to go, but God is going to do everything else. God is blessing. God is making Abram great. God is doing the action. Okay, so now let's look at what God says in particular. First, uh, in this promise, there are seven individual promises. You go, and I'm going to do one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Okay? Seven's a big number in the Bible. I don't have time to go into that. But um, 
But the, the most important one, of course, is the seventh, which is that he's going to bless all the families of the earth. Now, that word bless is important. Uh, we should know it's important because it's mentioned five times in two verses. Right? That's a lot. <laughs> okay. Uh, for most of us, a blessing is kind of what religious people do before they eat. Uh, but in the ancient Near East, it was something completely different. In the ancient Near East, which is where this is going on, the most important thing you could do for yourself, for your city, for your family, is to secure the blessing of the God. Okay? To secure the blessing of the deity for you, for your nation state, for whatever. And in the Old Testament, okay, that word is primarily used in talking about things like prosperity, fertility, victory over enemies. Okay? In other words, life. When you're in the ancient world, the things that are going to help you to live, to carry on, to have a legacy are prosperity, doing, doing well, your crops are doing well, uh, you're having kids, and your enemies are being put down. Okay? In other words, to be blessed in the Old Testament is to flourish as a person. Now think about that for a minute. This Abram guy who's going to become Abraham in the next couple of chapters, he's just a random dude. Like, there's nothing special. The only thing special about Abram at this point in, in, that we know of him is that he's 75 years old and he doesn't have any kids. That was not... Like, that, that, that would have put him on, on the social um, outside. <laughs> right? He's, he's, got, he's, got, no, he's got his wife and that's about it. He's not a ruler of anything. He's fairly wealthy, but he doesn't rule anything. And he worships a pagan god, literally. He worships Nanar, okay? And here's this dude that's doing all these things, and then the true god comes on the scene and picks him. Think about that. All of the biblical evidence points to the fact that Abraham, Abram, did, was not seeking God at all. Was not, how would he even know who the dude was? Okay? He had no idea. God sought out Abe. Okay? Now, here's what's going on in this particular passage. God is establishing a relationship with Abram. Again, this, this guy would become Abraham. He initiates it. He sets the parameters for it. But it is a relationship. And he calls Abram to leave his country, his kindred, and his father's house. In other words, leave your kin, your culture, and your country. Leave them all. And when he does that, he doesn't even tell him where, where to go. He's basically like, yeah, pack up, pack up. I'll show you on the way. And Abram's like, okay. And, you know, he packs up and he starts going. Uh, theologically, what is going on here is, is that we would say that God is establishing a covenant relationship with Abram. Okay, now that's an important word. Um, because we'll, we'll, get, we'll get back to that in a, in a little bit. But this gets formalized in chapter 12 and chapter 15. But here's where the foundation of it is. Okay, a covenant, if you remember from last time, and if you weren't here, just, just listen close. A covenant is a relationship that is bounded by explicit promises. It's a relationship bounded by explicit promises. It is relational and legal. Very important. It is both relational and legal, a lot like a marriage, right? A marriage is both relational and it's legal, okay? It has certain explicit promises. It is between persons, but both of those persons make promises explicitly to the other and exclusively to the other. Again, very important. Throughout the Bible, this is the way God interacts with his people. He interacts with people through covenants. He makes promises with them, all right? Now, that's the call. Let's look at the blessing, first by looking at shape. Look down at verses 2 to 3. God promises to make Abram a great nation. Now, that's a really interesting thing since Abram is 75 and he doesn't have any kids. It's going to be kind of hard to be made into a great nation. 
when you're a little past the age of being able to have kids, okay? Now, if we had been reading this straight from the beginning, this idea that God would make his name great, that's the second one, God promised to make his name great, and if we had just been reading through, that would, have, that would kind of ping our ears because of the fact that, like I said in chapter 11, that's the very thing that, the, that humanity had gathered to do when they built this tower. They were seeking to do a, this apart from God. They are trying to make their name great, and so what they are seeking to do apart from God, God picks this random nobody and says, I'm going to do that through you. I will make your name great. God would provide a great name to Abram if he depended on him. Now notice the next thing, though, that it wouldn't stay with Abram or even with the nation. That would, that would come from him, okay? Another concentric circle is, is added. He says, he says, I'm going to uh, make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing, okay? God will bless those who, blesses, who, who bless Abram and those who dishonor him. It says he will curse. Now, again, that's another thing that, should, that would raise a flag for us if we were reading from the beginning because God is saying, look, if, if people seek to flourish you, I'm going to flourish them. And if they don't, I'm, uh, we're going to have words, okay? Uh, now, if we're reading straight from the beginning, this sounds an awful lot like what he said in Genesis 3, verse 15. About the, the you know, remember if you were here last time, the, the seeds and the enmity, the, the conflict that's going to go on between them, God's saying, yeah, yeah, that's, that's about to happen. Guess what? It's going to go on through you. Okay? Then finally, he says that in this Abram guy, all the families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, remember what we said about blessing. All of humanity will flourish through Abe. And now we're getting somewhere, right? This is God saying, it is through your family, Abe. It's through your family that I'm going to answer the promise that I made back in that garden. It's through you. The shape of the blessing is God's promise to rescue us. This passage right here, this passage we're looking at right here is like, this is paradigmatic. This is like the, the, the formative chapter for the entire Old Testament. It is huge. God is sovereignly working out his promise. And he's sovereignly doing it, uh, his promise to rescue humanity by picking an unlikely man and working through his family. In other words, the God of the Bible is not a tribal God. He's not a parochial God. He's not a national God. The God of the Bible intends to extend his blessing to all peoples. This would have been outrageous to someone who had grown up in the ancient Near East. You remember what I said before, the whole point of, of your life, the biggest thing you could do is secure the blessing of the deity for you and at best for your city, which is like your nation, right? Because everyone just lived in big walled cities. And here's God saying, hey, you, don't, you don't get it. I'm not just here for you. And I'm not just working for your, your nation. I'm here that through you, the world might be blessed. Now, I want to point out something else that's central to this passage, and that is the outward force of a relationship with God. Did you notice that? God meets Abram, and the first thing he says to him is, Go. It's the first thing he says to him. Now, the same thing, if this were, if this were isolated, we go, yeah, that, that's interesting. This isn't isolated. This is like what happens every time God meets somebody. <laughs> like God meets Moses. Moses is, is doing, you know, minding his own business. He's, he's just hanging out with his sheep, looking for a sheep, and he sees this bush. It's like, oh, like, weird. Walks over to it, and God's like, you know, starts talking to him, and one of the first things he says to us, go to Pharaoh. You're not sticking around here anymore. Go. 
He does the same thing with Isaiah in the New Testament. Uh, well, he, he does it with Isaiah, he does it with Jeremiah. We see the same thing in the New Testament when, um, when Peter's freaking out on the boat, right? He's on the boat, and he's, he, there's this crazy story. Jesus is in the boat with him, and he's in the boat, and he's fishing. And Jesus is like, why don't you throw your net over there? Peter's like, oh, okay, all right. Carpenter's telling the fishermen how to fish. And he throws the net in, and there's so many fish, he can't even haul it up. boat begins to sink. And first thing he says is, away from me. I'm a sinful man. It's like suddenly his eyes open up. He's like, this dude is not normal. So he like, he, Peter finally opens his eyes to who he's actually dealing with. And Jesus says, don't worry, Peter, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Go. Like this is the way God interacts with, with people. Okay, but this isn't all that has an outward force. So also there's this notion of blessing. Did you see that? Like the, the blessing was never meant to stay with Abe. And it wasn't even meant to stay with his family. It was always supposed to move out. Abe's family would be, a, would be blessed so that they could be a blessing to the world. But if you're familiar at all with the Old Testament, you know that this is, not, this is where all the problems started. It didn't happen. Abe's family failed and failed and failed. They, they couldn't ever seem to consistently turn the blessing of God outward because they were still part of the problem in which they were still turned inward. They were still bent in on themselves. They couldn't be the agents of healing in the world because they were still broken. They couldn't be the solution to the world because they were still part of the problem. And so over and over again, Abe's family turned God's promises into a license for them to do whatever they wanted. And the Old Testament ends asking the same question that we, that we were asking coming into chapter 12. How is God going to answer his promise? Especially now that he said it's got to happen through Abraham's family. And they can't even get it right. The New Testament answers that question with the name Jesus. How can God answer the promise to rescue the world through the family of Abraham when they, in fact, need rescue? It's answered in the first few chapters of the New Testament. That God will become part of Abraham's family in Jesus to rescue everyone, including Abe's family. It is through Jesus that the blessing comes to all the families of the earth. He deals with our guilt by both living the life that we couldn't, keeping that covenant with God, and becoming a substitute for us. In other words, bearing the judgment that we deserve on the cross. And he deals with our corruption by rising again from the dead to make us new. Jesus is the true son of Abraham, and through him all the families of the earth are blessed. This is why in the first chapter, or, or in, the, in the first few chapters of the first gospel, the gospel of Matthew, when the, when the genealogy of Jesus is given, it traces its origin back to Abraham. Luke's is different, right? If you read Luke's, it goes all the way back to Adam, but that's not what Matthew does. Why? Because Matthew is very clear. Here's the son of Abraham. Here is the one who will, who will be the blessing for the world. And this is why the Apostle Paul says later in the New Testament that Christ Jesus, that through Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham has come to the Gentiles. Okay? Quick, quick aside. In the Jewish world, there are two types of people. Jews and Gentiles. If you were not of Jewish blood, guess what? Gentile. Most of us. My guess would be almost all of us, right? In other words, the blessing of Abraham came to us because of Jesus. Jesus is the long-expected answer to God's promise to reconcile the world to himself and to bless it through Abraham's family. You with me? 
All right. Now, having said all that, I'd like to speak in a more applied manner if I can for a moment. Because first, I want to look at how this long-expected answer is based in covenant. You remember I said that a covenant is a promise-bound relationship, right? That is both relational and legal, okay? Uh, There's one more aspect to it. A covenant is always mediated through an individual, okay? And I want to talk about those three things really quick uh, to tease out the implications. Because many of us today, especially in our culture, want to deal with God either relationally or legally, Right? We want him to be either relational or legal. And what I mean is this. Some of us want a kind of a, a private spirituality that doesn't ask anything of us. Right? That's a purely relational. I, I want to, look, don't, don't get me, God doesn't really want anything from me. He's not asking anything from me. My God is not a God of judgment. He's not a da 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 He's not actually upset by anything. Like, he's completely impassive and nothing really da-da-da-da. We want a purely relational aspect of him. We are spiritual but not religious. Right? You with me? Now, others of us, though, don't want to deal with God like that at all. We want to deal with him legally, not relationally. And if, if you were raised in the church, uh, my guess is, is that this is where you probably lean, okay? Um, what, what this means is that we want to... We, we just want to know what he wants, can you just tell me what you want? Because then I can do it, and then you can do for me what I want. It's a nice little business relationship, okay? But here's the thing. If you try to have one without the other, if you try to have the relational without the legal, or the legal without the relational, what you end up doing is you end up destroying both. You end up destroying both, okay? Listen close. How can you have a relationship with someone that doesn't ask anything of you? Have you ever had a relationship with someone that doesn't ask anything of you? I mean, think with me for a minute. Friendships require a couple things. Generally, disclosure and time. Right? Up the ante a little bit. Marriages. If you're married here this morning, you know marriages require sacrifice. They require even more disclosure. We call it intimacy. And even more time. And having children. Lord, Like the plague swept through my house this week, right? Having kids requires even more sacrifice, even more time, especially your sleep. Throw it out the window. Gone. Done. You thought you slept. You're like, I don't need that much sleep. We'll find out. (laughs) We're going to find out, okay? You get the picture. You cannot have a relationship with another person that doesn't ask something of you. If you do, it's not a relationship at all. It's an illusion. Okay? In the same way, you guys who want a purely legal relationship with God, what do you do when you can't meet the standards? Here's what I mean. God says one of, one of, the, one of the legal requirements of, God, of a relationship with God, of, of being near to God, is that you love Him. It's relational. That's not legal. So what, what do you do when you can't keep that? I mean, Jesus said that that was like the most important of the commandments was to love Him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. When we insist on relating to God legally, and yet one of the standards is relational, all we do is consistently break what Jesus said was the most important of the laws. Okay? But a covenant is both relational and legal. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, but... If I'm in a relationship with God that requires of me something I can't give, where does that leave me? Good. Good. 
That's the right question, okay? And that is where my point about the individual comes in. Now listen close. When I said that God's covenants are mediated through an individual, what I meant is this. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to be connected to the blessing of God, you had to be connected to Abraham. You had to be connected to Abraham. Now, that shouldn't surprise us, because like in the story that came you know, just a couple chapters before Abraham, the only people who lived through the flood were those who were connected relationally to Noah, right? I mean, this, this, is, why, this is how this happens, but here's why this matters. God's rescue, listen to me, listen to me close, God's rescue, his blessing, is not universally distributed It is intimately connected to the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is because if you are connected to Jesus, He has kept the covenant for you. He has kept it for you. He has loved God with all of His heart, mind, soul, and strength. And He has sacrificed Himself for your sin. In other words, He has done everything to keep the covenant for you, and He has done everything to take the the consequences for breaking it for you. When you place your faith in Jesus, the relational side of the covenant is met because God embraces you as His his beloved child, reconciled to Him. And the legal side is met because Jesus kept the law for you. Listen to me. I know some of you grew up thinking that that Christianity, what Christianity really is, is it's like, it's just... It's like the nice law, right? Like what it means to be right with God is just to be nice to everybody. That's not it at all. Christianity is not about that at all. Ultimately, Christianity doesn't give you an ethic to follow, but a person. And if you are connected with the person, then you are reconciled to God. All that is left for you is to turn away from all those other things we look to for life and to trust alone in Jesus. Friends, embrace Christ. If you are here this morning and you haven't, Can I ask you, embrace him. Don't you see, he's the only one through whom the flourishing that you were made for can come. The only one. He is the only way that God has made to reconcile us to himself. All right, but lastly, though, I want to speak to the idea of being blessed to bless. Okay? Because so often Christians are caricatured, rightly, I might add, caricatured as those who think God picked them to be on his team and literally to hell with everyone else. Right? That's the way a lot of folks caricature Christians. Listen to me close, especially if you're a Christian here this morning. It is very clear from this text that God sovereignly works to call people to himself. You cannot say it is against God's character to call people into relationship with him, to initiate relationship with them as opposed from someone else, when it is very clear from this text that, that, that God does this. And it's very clear in other texts that he does this with regularity, okay? The very heart of the gospel is found in Charles Wesley's hymn, okay, uh, which there was an interesting article about, ironically, on the Gospel Coalition's website this morning. But uh, Charles Wesley's hymn, hymn, in which he's speaking of himself before God rescued him, in that he said he was fast bound by sin in nature's night, enchained. But as he's in those chains, he says, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray, and I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free, and so then I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Okay? He calls us to himself. He acts first, so that from first to last, grace, the unmerited favor of God, is the only hope and our only praise. But 
That being said, look to Abraham, okay? God's call comes with an outward thrust. In other words, to, to use um, more theological language, election equals vocation. Election equals vocation. We are reconciled to God. We are blessed by God to be agents of God, instruments of His blessing in the world. Not to sit back and act all self-righteous as if, look at what I did. We didn't. He calls us, He saves us, and then He sends us. Listen to me. Especially if you were raised or, or would define yourself as Presbyterian. You need to listen to me. The doctrine of election... God's sovereign choice to save you. The doctrine of election is always, in the New Testament and the Old Testament, connected to two things. Comfort and calling. Comfort, because when all we can see is our brokenness, when all we can see is our junk, and if you haven't been in a period in your life where all you see is your junk, get ready. It is not fun, but it is coming. But when we are all we can see is our junk, we are reminded that God knew about all that and He saved us according to His will and not our effort. So it's a comfort, but it's also a calling because it is still through Abraham's families that all the, or through his family that all the families of the earth will be blessed. Only now we see that Abraham's family consists of those of the faith of Abraham and not just his blood. You following me? The outward thrust has got to be there. Okay? Now, here are two takeaways for you. If you believe that Jesus is the only hope for your friends and neighbors, and the only way for them to access the promise of God to rescue them, okay? If you actually believe, you're a Christian here this morning, you believe that the only that, that God's action in the world through Jesus is what his plan was to, to rescue the world, and that the only hope for your friends and neighbors is for them to be connected to that, why don't you tell them? I mean, some of you are like, Rick, bro, I am earning the right to speak. I know, but like for the last 15 years, like what's the currency level on that? I mean, you got inflation. What is this? How long does it take to earn the right to speak? Okay. When do you think that happens? You know, I mean, some of us claim to be loving our friends by earning the right when in fact all we're really doing is loving ourselves because we don't want to be seen as weird. Right? I'm just like you. I I'm with you. Like, I'm not on a mountain telling you that. We need to tell our friends and neighbors, okay? But secondly, let me say this. If you are a Christian here this morning, you are sent into this city as an agent of blessing. Being a sent person in, as a Christian is not a special office, and it's not a unique calling. It is what it means to be a Christian. It is what it means to be a Christian, okay? You are sent... This means in your neighborhood, you are an agent of God's blessing. In your workplace, you are an agent of God's blessing to see the flourishing of your clients and your co-workers. In your family or with your roommates, you are an agent of God's blessing to serve rather than be served. you tracking with me? You see how this works? In this church, you are an agent of God's blessing to those who are members and those who have just walked in. Friends, there is no such thing as an unsent Christian. There is no such thing as a consumer Christian. There are no takers in God's family. Why? 
because he's given you everything. There's nothing left to take. If the gospel has, has done what, what God says it has done, if God's promise is true that everything we've ever hoped for has come to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, there's nothing left to take. And if you believe that, the only thing left to do is to give. Your time, your talent, even your treasure to, to those around you. Why? Because it is through the family of Abraham, through God's people, that the world will be blessed. God promised to bless the world through the family of a man who was, quite frankly, as in, in, in the ancient world, as good as dead. And then he accomplished that through another man who literally was dead, but then rose again so that this blessing might be for all who cling to him and through all who cling to him. Would you pray with me? Lord, there is nothing more hopeful and nothing more worthy of praise to us than the fact that you are a promise-making and promise-keeping God. And so, Lord, for all of us in this room, I ask that you would, you would work in us faith in the gospel, faith in Christ, repentance of all the things that we cling to instead of him, and that as we move more and more towards the celebration of Christ's birth, that, Lord, you would deepen us in that and make us expectant, not just of your coming, but of your work through us into the world. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.